Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. What he drilled into there is something I've commented on a few times before and I'll speak briefly on here. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now as often as not, even among our people, I hear that phrase invoked as if it is saying, you shall know the fundamental precepts of the gospel and that shall set you free. That is true. There is a freedom. You're set at liberty to know that Christ has finished the work. But that is not what is being said in this text. The previous verse says this, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. He's talking to people who are already born again. They already believe on the Lord. And what's he saying to them? If ye continue in my word. That means... If you continue to be a disciple, that means now I'm living in a way that is in accordance with how you taught me to live. That would include in our time things like coming to church, serving in the Lord's house, being a member of the kingdom, continuing in the Lord's service. If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. He's talking about discipleship indeed. Literally indeed in what you do and how you live out your life. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's something liberating in hearing and believing the gospel, that's for sure. But there's an additional liberation in living in accordance with that truth and in serving the Lord in those things. So I appreciate those words. It's something we need to be regularly reminded of. It's an element of time salvation, is it not? It's doing not just uh, believing certain things in an academic sense, but actually doing and acting in accordance with those beliefs. I want to talk to you today about a secret weapon. Have you ever thought about how secret weapons benefit different military endeavors, right? You know, I think of the Second World War, for example. We had a secret weapon, didn't we? Enemy didn't know about it. They didn't know how far along we were. I mean, everybody knows in some sense, well, everybody's got a military and they're kind of working on some secret weapons. So they might have something they could pull out on us that could surprise us. During the Second World War, there was this enormous effort to build an atomic bomb. That was our secret weapon. And it was responsible for ending the Second World War in many respects. They built enormous facilities across the country. Everything that was going on in these places was very much on the down low. You go out to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and they built an entire city there that had essentially 75,000 people working there. I mean, they had churches and a symphony and a community there, and all those people were working on a secret weapon. Their portion of it was to acquire sufficient quantities of the uranium required to build an atomic weapon. But it was secret. It was so secret that the scientists who were brought there to work on this thing, they didn't even talk about what they were doing with their wives. And many of them, it was very compartmentalized. Some of them didn't fully understand the big picture. A lot of them didn't. In fact, the construction of this secret weapon was distributed across different locations as a way of preventing anyone from knowing the whole story, right? Because that could be a potential security issue, right? 
In Oak Ridge, Tennessee, they were working on the uranium component. I think out in Los Alamos, they were working more on the technical elements of how you put all that together and how you're going to test it and things like that. And they didn't fully understand what each other were doing, or very few of them did. But there was a secret weapon. And when that secret weapon was unleashed, it ended the Second World War. Two bombs were dropped on Japan. A lot of people in our time today are now coming back and trying to question this from a morality standpoint. How could you do this horrible thing? However, the estimates that people have done who look into these sorts of things are that this act saved the United States two to four million casualties. It actually saved Japan five to ten million casualties. Now, war is an ugly thing, and there are difficult decisions that have to be made in the context of a war that make you uncomfortable. But I have to say that from my standpoint, the math of that seems to make sense to me in the context of a war. If you want to play cavalier with that and say, well, I'm not sure about that, well, think if your son is one of those people that's about to go try to invade Japan. Very likely he's going to end up being one of those millions of casualties. I don't think it's difficult to understand why the generations before us chose to use that secret weapon, and it accomplished its end. It had devastating results upon the enemy such that they said, you know what, unconditional surrender is fine with us. That's what we're going to do. Now, that is one of the more dramatic stories in the history of warfare regarding a secret weapon and its ability to end the conflict. And no doubt about that. Secret weapons, if they're successful and efficacious and capable of doing the thing that we hope they're going to do, they can have dramatic effects in this world. I want you all to consider the reality that prayer is the secret weapon of God's people. It's one we don't utilize enough. We're in a spiritual warfare here. And I wonder if we can heartily amen that prayer is our secret weapon, as Brother Sonny just did. Are we willing to commit to the idea that we really believe it has the effects in this world that a secret weapon can have? Turn to the book of Nehemiah. I want to show you an example here. In the first chapter of Nehemiah. It's in a time when God's people in the Old Covenant were in Babylonian captivity. I'll pick up the story in verse 3. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. They're in a time of desolation. Our world's been wrecked by what the Babylonians did when they came in and overtook us. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now there's a time when we kind of confront the issues in our lives, the difficult things where we may be emotionally overwrought by it. We may cry about it. We may weep about it. It may be very upsetting to us. But look at Nehemiah's examples. He mourned for a time and wept. Then he fasted and then he prayed before the God of heaven. Now, this is a big deal, right? Your entire society has been 
destroyed at this point. This is the way the Israelites were looking at this. We've been led off into captivity. It's actually very difficult, I think, for us to enter into what that means. It means something like, you're sitting in your house one day, living your normal life, have all the normal stuff going on that you think, and an army comes and knocks at your front door, drags you out, and takes you to another country where you're going to serve as a slave. That would be incredibly upsetting. Very disorienting. You might be saying, I've got my rights. Doesn't matter. You got nothing. You got whatever those who are in charge now say you can have, which is nothing other than service to them, and you've lost everything. Absolutely everything. It's hard to imagine how incredibly upsetting this set of circumstances would be to God's people. But if you thought of yourself being drug out of your house and taken off to a foreign land, I mean, you'd probably spend the first two or three weeks just thinking silly things like, oh, you know, I hope a pipe doesn't burst. You know, I'm not there. Who's going to feed the dog? Uh, hmm. Man, I bet my grass is getting high out there. It will be so hard to enter into the reality of what's actually happened that for a season, I suspect you would be entertaining all kinds of silly ideas as if, well, I'll get to go back there in another week or two. This will all get straightened out, right? They're going to come to their senses and realize, well, you know, those people got to take care of their properties. No, none of that's happening. And after that sort of goes past you and you begin to stop thinking those silly thoughts, you begin to come to grips with the fact that, in all likelihood, I'm never going to see any of that again. This is the new normal for me, and that is gone. It would be easy to see why someone in their natural mind and in their carnal thoughts would go to a place of just abject despair. I just don't think this is ever going to get fixed. This is the end of the world for us. But Nehemiah was inclined to get beyond this and turn to the secret weapon. He said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that loveth him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah's prayer starts with recognizing in their national circumstance that Israel is a wayward nation. That they have rebelled against God. They've done it time and time and time again. And this is why they're in this situation. So he doesn't start with, boy, this is a terrible circumstance here. God, will you fix it? He is introspective enough to look at himself and say, you know what? Our people are enfranchising why this is happening to us. He starts with confession and correction. Look, Lord, I admit we've sinned. Sometimes I feel like our modern society and probably the old Baptists as well have downgraded the idea of repentance. I think it's possible for us to be so opposed to what gets taught in the broader world of Christianity, which is that a man must do an act of righteousness in order to become eternally saved. You must repent in order to get eternal life. 
We are so focused on opposing that false idea that we stray away from saying, there's things we need to be repenting of. The only person who can repent in sincerity is someone who has faith. Because no man repents of something that he doesn't believe. See what I'm saying? If I came to you and said, look, you need to repent because you killed the Easter bunny. I'm never going to get a sincere repentance out of you. And why is that? Because you don't believe there is an Easter bunny. You're like, there is no Easter bunny. I'm not convicted by that. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's foolishness. I don't believe it. That's the attitude of a man who has no faith with respect to the truth. He's not going to repent of something he doesn't believe in. He regards it as foolishness. But God's people who have the mind of Christ are people who can look objectively at themselves and say, I've sinned and I need to do something different. I need to turn from that. That's where Nehemiah starts. Maybe where we need to start. Verse 7. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. We're just wrong. We've been wrong. We recognize it. Remember, I beseech ye the word that thou commandest thy servants Moses, saying, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. You know what that is? Conditional time condemnation. If you do this thing, you're going to be condemned for it. It's taught in the Bible. He's saying, remember, Moses taught conditional time salvation and conditional time condemnation. There's a condemnation that can come into your life as a result of rebellion. No doubt about it. And Nehemiah is asking the Lord to remember that this is the arrangement that Israel had been put under. But he's remembering the other part of this too. But if you turn unto me, in other words, if you've done that stuff, you've messed up, been in rebellion, but if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost parts of the heaven, yet I will gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. In other words, Lord, you told us that this condemnation will come into our lives, but you also said if we will repent of it, there can be a restoration here, right? One of the things that's great about Nehemiah's prayer is that he remembers what God said. One of the biggest problems with us in our prayer lives is that we're too prone to not remember what God said. We lose sight of the promises of God. Our prayers can just become a laundry list of stuff we want to happen rather than looking at this really important precept Maybe there's some things going on here. Maybe I'm experiencing some condemnation because I need to repent of some things. I'm just not living the way I ought. I need to repent of those things, and God will accept that and bring a restoration of sorts into my life. If we as primitive Baptists have run away from this idea that we need to repent from things from time to time, we're just totally out of the way. That's not primitive at all. This is Nehemiah, okay? This is some primitive ideas here that trace themselves all the way back to Moses. It's in the root of the Bible here. And we need to be aware that we're called unto repentance in many ways as well. And in many respects, the Christian life is constantly managing aspects of your own repentance. 
If you were to pilot an enormous vessel from New York to the Straits of Gibraltar, even if you were just off by one degree, you would miss the mark tremendously. You'd run into Spain or something, right? Portugal, or you'd hit Africa. Because over the course of a long distance, just being a little bit out of line can take you way off the path. So anyone that's piloting a large vessel like that, what are they doing? They don't point it and set it on cruise control and then go play shuffleboard for the next three or four days and hope they end up in the right place. It doesn't work that way. Neither does the Christian walk work that way. A pilot of a big ship like that is constantly assessing the weather, the wind, the currents, whether or not the engines are working correctly. All these things have a bearing on where the ship actually is headed. And the biggest responsibility for those piloting that ship is to be making regular and steady course corrections. We're a little bit off course. You know, the wind's a little bit more to the west than we thought it was going to be. We're going to have to turn a little bit more <laughs> to the right. Oh, you know what? Some of these seasonal currents are not exactly what we anticipated that they would be. We're going to have to turn back to the left a little bit. Constantly adjusting the course. That is very much like the Christian walk. We're supposed to be headed towards Zion, following the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we might be able to lay that out on a map as a straight line, the winds and the currents of this world are constantly blowing you off course. Imperceptibly. Now, ships today have these global positioning systems. They can tell you where a gigantic ship is within a few inches of its actual location on the globe. I'm sure that's tremendously advantageous if you're piloting a big vessel like that. But if you just go back a hundred years or so, it was not nearly so clear how you would do this. You didn't have that GPS system. And you had people who were constantly measuring and doing dead reckoning and doing all these different navigational techniques to do these corrections on information that's a little bit more sketchy. You're trying to look at the stars at night. Oh, well, you know, it's a cloudy night. We can't see them so well. Well, that's going to make it hard for us to know where we are. The Word of God teaches us that repentance is this sort of course correction we have to do on the ship that we're piloting here. And that ship is our lives. That's part of the Christian walk. And the Word of God is like that GPS. It's giving you the truth. And as often as not, we get off course because we're not even looking at the GPS. We're just assuming that the sh Look, I pointed it in the right direction. Surely I'm going to get there. If you're not checking against the accurate data that measures your life and whether or not you're on course, how are you going to know that you're off course? But lots of God's people are off course. They don't even know it. They've never even checked their coordinates. They're just assuming that everything is fine. And on top of that, if you think, I don't really ever have to make any corrections... I don't ever have to change anything. You're just as silly as the person who would launch that ship out of New York Harbor and assume, because I pointed it in the right direction when we left, that it's going to hit the Straits of Gibraltar. It's ridiculous. There's a need for God's people to regularly check the GPS. Very important. Sorry to run that rabbit trail, but the point I wanted to make here 
more than anything else about Nehemiah is that Nehemiah recognized something about the power of prayer. He was in a literally what seemingly hopeless situation from the standpoint of current circumstances. Like he wasn't looking around saying, well, we got enough people here. I think we could have an insurrection and overtake the Babylonians and just go back to... No, he's like, that ain't happening. (laughs) I know that's not happening. But I've got a secret weapon here. I could put my cares before God. And if you go on and read that, I won't go any further in it. Well, I'll read verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. He put his cares before God, and in doing so, he was invoking the secret weapon of God's people. Is God able to get you out of whatever circumstance you're in? I can tell you I've been in circumstances in my life where I've just had to say, I literally don't know how this is going to get resolved. I don't know what I can do. I've thought through things. In my professional life, I'm constantly dealing with situations where there are problems. That's essentially what a job is. A job is, here's somebody else's problems. We're going to pay you some money to solve them. Right? It could be moving a pile of stuff from one part of the warehouse to the other. It could be some figuring out how you're going to get investment for some project. But at the end of the day, it's a problem, and you've got to come up with a solution for it. But I've had problems laid at my feet in life that I look at and I say, I don't have any levers to pull here, right? I don't have any way to move this thing out of the way. Does that mean I'm totally without hope? Well, it does if I don't have a secret weapon. And prayer is God's people's secret weapon. Look at Hezekiah, 2 Kings chapter 20. By the way, a lot of times people think of prayer and they think, well, it's all, it's, it's, it's all about spiritual matters. Like my day-to-day life, job situations, family situations, maybe I need to be praying more lofty spiritual things. Nehemiah is praying about specific temporal circumstances. Okay? If you look through the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 and you look at all those things that people did by faith, It's not a bunch of lofty spiritual sort of things that are disconnected from the affairs of this temporal life. They have to do with the temporal affairs of life. You can't separate the two. And what I'm trying to do is encourage you that if you have temporal circumstances that are unpleasant or incorrect, you can take them before the Lord. You should be considering the possibility that I have put myself in this situation. Some people are spiritually starving to death. They don't ever get anything to eat. You're out there wiling in the world. You know, I'm just so spiritually depressed. And I, well, if you don't ever avail yourself of the comfort of God's people, the fellowship of the saints, the teaching of the Word of God, the prayers of the saints, worshiping God through song, all these things that are available for you in the kingdom of God, it is no mystery that you're going to be starving to death spiritually. It's just not. So we have to consider the possibility, as Nehemiah did, that we're enfranchised in the problem, and there's things we could do from the standpoint of repentance, but also to recognize we can take it to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord can fix things that we can't even begin to figure out. Hezekiah had this tale in 2 Kings chapter 20. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Well, that's not anything you want to hear, really. 
you know, that's probably not going to make you too happy. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord. And by the way, he's, he's drawing upon the secret weapon here, right? There's nothing he can do to change this. This is what's been said. That's what's going to happen. Well, I'm going to take it to the Lord in prayer. We sing that from time to time, do we not? It's the only place to go. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, The God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day, thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. God can fix the problem. Hezekiah knew where to go. God is not devoid of the capacity to fix these things, even when we don't have any way to fix them. This is the same God that parted the Red Sea, parted the Jordan, brought Lazarus out of the grave, resurrected Jesus Christ, and by that same power resurrected you by the working of his mighty power gave you spiritual birth so that you now have the spiritual life to be able to receive and profit from a message like this why should we think he's devoid of power to do this and i will add unto thy days 15 years and i will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of assyria and i will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant david's sake there's a whole lot that god can do here that they had no way of figuring out how this could come to pass Sometimes our prayers are saddled with too much instruction. Think about who you're praying to. This is the God that spoke the world into existence out of nothing. He has resurrection power. He parts seas. He tells the seas to stop where they stop. God does all these things. And somehow, you know, I hear sometimes people are in prayer requests, we, we get to thinking, I do the same thing. I'm not getting on you if you do this. We all think this way. Well, the Lord needs to bring his uh, white blood cell counts down. If we could just pray that. No, just, we don't have to tell God how to fix this problem. You see what I'm saying? We've got issues. We're praying to an omniscient and omnipotent God. We can put them before him. Sometimes prayer should take on more of the character of worship and a whole lot less of the character of, I need to tell God how to handle this problem. I mean, you see how presumptuous that is? It's kind of silly. Have you ever had one of your children start telling you, a little child tell you, wait, mommy, you could get in there and you could do this, cook us some dinner, and all you'd have to do is do this. And that. I remember one time I told my mother, I was asking for something as a little kid, and I spent all this time with my mother. And she said, well, son, we're out of money. Your dad doesn't get paid until Friday. So we, we don't. And I said, Mom, we're not out of money. All you got to do is just go to the bank. I've seen you do it a bunch of times. You go in there to the bank and you write them a check and they hand you the money you need. And then we'll just go get the stuff we need. And she's just shaking her head like, you don't have a clue. I guess I thought at that time the bank just gave out money. You just wrote them a little piece of paper and they just give you all the money you want. And mom was just, she didn't even know where to begin to tell me how ridiculous that was. But I was utterly convinced that I had it all figured out. 
How much more so must God think about some of our prayers sometimes? We're sitting there trying to tell Him, Lord, if you could just do this or that. Lord can do anything. Anything that's in His will, within His power, that's not contrary to His character, He can do it. He can solve the problem. He can come up with a way that's better than what you would have come up with anyway. And so maybe sometimes when we're praying to God for deliverance and things, we just need to step back and say, God, you are holy and perfect and awesome and wonderful. And I love you, Lord. And here's the thing I'm struggling with. You can deliver. I can't even figure out how it would be solved, but I know you can. See how worshipful that is? Verse 7, and Isaiah said, take a lump of figs, and they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up unto the house of the Lord the third day? So Hezekiah wants a sign for this, some sort of affirmation. Make of that what you will, but it's in the Bible. And Isaiah said, this sign shalt thou have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go back 10 degrees? In other words, the shadow cast by the sun, we're going to make it go forward or backward 10 degrees as a miraculous proof that God's going to do this sort of thing. And Hezekiah answered, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward 10 degrees. Now, it's not a light thing for the shadow to go back or forward any more one than the other. I mean, it's kind of a silly thing. I actually went out on the internet and looked at some discussion forums of different Christian people and ministers discussing this passage of Scripture. It was an astonishing expose of how even professing Christian people don't really understand we're talking about an omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign God. There's debates going on about whether it would be harder or easier for the shadow to go forward or backward. People were talking about, well, if God actually rotated the earth more quickly so that the shadow would go forward, if God were doing that, then you'd have all these problems. Buildings would topple over. There would be all these issues, tectonic shifts in the planet and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, this is God. I'll say this honestly. It's something everybody should ponder. Our public schooling system in the 20th century adopted an utterly naturalistic worldview that said, we're going to kick prayer out of school, and it's all about science now. And most of you are the produce of that schooling system. And it shaped the mindset of many people in America towards pure naturalism. You really cannot see, in some respects, who God really is. Because you're trying to look to science to explain all this stuff, and you don't even realize it. Well, if God turned the earth more quickly, then it would cause buildings to fall down, and you know we would all fall over when it started happening. No, He has total dominion over the things of nature. He created it. Amen. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. You want to know why this is all holding together? Because God is holding it together. We get so embedded in naturalistic arguments, and Christian people are really bad about not being able to see it. They're constantly trying to explain these things away. This is why I've made such a big deal in recent months about the notion of the resurrection. God has power over life and death. We don't have to explain it away. It is a simple fact. That's who God is. 
He's not beholden to the laws of nature. He has dominion over them and can do as he wishes with the world. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow down ten degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. God's able to do that. Well, how did God do it? I don't know. He's God. How about that? Sometimes we just lose sight of who God is. Let me close with this. Matthew chapter 6. I said this was a secret weapon. Prayer. And it is a weapon because of the one upon whom we're calling. He has all power. And it's a powerful thing. We're praying within his will. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Jesus is not saying there's no occasion for public prayer. He's talking about hypocrisy here. He's talking about, I'm going to go prove to everyone what a great religious person I am because I'm going to go right out in the middle of Times Square. I'm going to go right out in the public place and I'm going to be praying and making a big show of my religion. He's saying don't be like that. Don't be hypocritical in that way. He's not saying there's no occasion for public prayer. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret and thy Father which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. That's the secret weapon right there. Now, we should be praying for things as a congregation. It's part of our church function that we pray publicly in that way. That's part of our worship service. But the secret weapon that Jesus is talking about here is your private prayer life. It is important. There's probably not a single one of you out there that doesn't have some situation in their mind, whether it's in your family, in your community, in the political domain, something that you think, I wish this situation could be resolved, but I don't see any way out of it. Well, who are we praying to? Do we spend time in secret with the Lord, interceding on these matters, worshiping God, recognizing God is God, and he can fix this thing, even though I can't figure out how on earth it could ever possibly be fixed. He can deliver us, even though if you just work the math with your carnal mind, there's no way I could ever get this to work out. That's who we're praying to. I talked about people spiritually starving to death, and if it's not starving, then it's just worry. Lots of folks are functioning in the domain of worrying about things all the time. If you skip down in chapter 6, he's talking about, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. The Lord knows that you need certain temporal things just to get by in this life. You've got to have food and clothing. The Lord has promised that He's going to provide us for that. So if we're getting way bent out of shape about that, we need to check ourselves in it. That's a faithless act. By the way, I'll just put this comment in there. There are mechanisms whereby God delivers in those respects. Consider this. If you're part of this church and you're here and you're involved, say you go through an economically hard time and you're like, I don't know where we're going to eat. I am confident the Lord's people are not going to let you starve to death. I think God often delivers the goods in that way. Now, God can deliver them miraculously. And if we're derelict in supporting another in that way, I'm sure God is able 
to provide it in another way. But I think that's one of the functions of the kingdom of God and of a family. Indeed, if you had someone starving in your own family, would you not give them something to eat? We worry about these things, but we shouldn't. Rather, our focus should be on the Lord. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, focus on following God. This other stuff will work itself out in keeping with God's promises. Don't be focused on worrying about that. Focus on serving the Lord and serving him first. Take, therefore, no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. With our current family situation, Catherine's mom having to go to a nursing home, and there's been a lot of us stepping in to trying to care for her, and it's difficult, and you kind of wonder where these things are going sometimes. It can be upsetting. Catherine and I have had to regularly come back and say, Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. We're all pretty creative, and any of us can think about a hundred terrible things that could happen next week, tomorrow, next year, in the next election. You just go right on down the line. Next school year. It's possible for you to think about those scenarios and think, wow, if that happened, that would be miserable, and I would be so upset if that happened. And now I'm going to take this thing, And I'm going to import it into right now and start ruminating on the misery of it. When you do that, you are fighting a phantom. It's something that's not real. You have invented it in your mind and you are now going to allow yourself to experience the misery of it right now when it's not even real. Life will serve up enough tribulation for you to deal with in the day. You don't have to invent new things and bring them into the day. Right, And I would say this as a a little bit of scolding in this, because I've done it some in my own life. It's actually quite indulgent for us to be that way. I'm telling you there are people that you know right now who in their present real circumstances have something horrible going on. They don't have the option of saying maybe that won't happen. It is happening right here and right now. And they don't have any choice but to endure that tribulation. And then we're going to step over here and say, well, things are going pretty well for me. But, you know, if I think about what might happen in two or three months, I'm going to bring that into today and sit here and have a pity party over it and be miserable about it. That is incredibly indulgent. It's offensive, honestly. Those of you who struggle with worry, I want you to begin to enter into the idea that maybe your worry... It's not so benevolent as you make it out to be. It might be a childish indulgence on your part. And maybe what you ought to be doing is saying, I'm not going to worry about that. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. I've got enough bad stuff going on on any given day. I'm going to focus on that. The Lord's going to get me through it. And maybe we should redirect that energy towards someone we know who is suffering and say, how can I help to alleviate some of their suffering? How can I serve in the kingdom of God? I set that before you. I mentioned prescriptive prayers, and I guess I'll close with this. Prayer is our secret weapon. It's because of who we're praying to, and we underutilize it. I want to call on each of us to pray more, not less. Set aside some time in your day to say, I'm going to pray. I published the prayer list out there. That's one way to do it. You can write things down. You can have conversations with people. There's always things to pray about, not just in your own life, but in the lives of others. I encourage you to do that and set aside a time to, to do that. 
Well, we have to remember who we're praying to. And in that respect, I think what Paul said is helpful. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We're in a spiritual battle. God is spirit. He's the one who can fight that battle. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having, the, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The thing I want us to do as we consider this secret weapon is to realize who we're praying to. And whatever problems we have in our lives, in our families, and even in our church, I want us to recognize that we're praying to the God who can fix those things. I want us to recognize that we may be, in some sense, enfranchised in the problem from time to time because there may be instances where the thing needs to be fixed as a result of repenting from something you're doing. That's very real. We should become comfortable with it. If the idea of a preacher saying to repent to you, kind of, oh, I don't really like that. Get used to it. It's part of the Christian walk. Maybe we haven't exercised that muscle enough in our lives. Maybe we should be more acquainted with it. It'll improve your life if you do it. We have a secret weapon. It's prayer, and I want us to be more mindful of the power of prayer, both in our lives, in our families, and in the church. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.